Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about local history, based in Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. This season I've been sharing what my first semester has been like doing a master's in history at the University of Alberta. What you're about to hear is something that our department put together. It's an interview that my colleague Dylan Hall and I conducted with the University of Manitoba's Andrew Wolford about genocide of Indigenous peoples in North America. You may find this material intense or disturbing. If you listen and you find yourself needing support, consider calling the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. You can also reach the National Indian Residential School text line for free by texting 686868 247 You can also call the Canadian Mental Health Association toll-free 24-7 at 1-833-456-4566 or in Quebec, 1-866-277-3553 or visit crisisservicescanada.ca. We hope you listen. Dr. Wolford has some important things to say that Settler Canada urgently needs to deal with. But please, look after yourself. Take a walk, call or text a friend, take care of your body with a snack, and feel free to show your emotions, whatever you're feeling. Thanks to Dr. Crystal Fraser for sharing these tips. This episode of Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by ATB. Donate to your favorite charities through ATB Cares. ATB Cares is a platform that lets you donate and have your donation matched by ATB which will make your impact go further. ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to eligible Alberta charities, up to a maximum of 500 bucks. And you'll get a tax receipt. So, if you're looking to support some worthy causes this Christmas, consider donating through atbcares.ca. The discovery of grave sites at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in 2021, well, it seems like it's forced a Canada-wide conversation about the settler destruction of Indigenous peoples and lands and cultures. And Canada is long overdue for this conversation. On December 1st, 2021, the University of Alberta's Department of History, Classics, and Religion presented the 2021 Western Canadian Lecture. The U of A is located in Edmonton, Alberta, or Miskwichiwiskaigan, of course, which is home to Cree, Blackfoot, Dene, Soto, Nakota Sioux, Métis, and many other Indigenous peoples. This year's lecture was Dr. Andrew Wolford, zooming in online from Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory, home to Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and is of course the homeland of the Métis Nation. Dr. Wolford is a prominent scholar in genocide studies who's worked on the history of Indian residential schools in Canada. His talk was entitled, With Intent to Destroy a Group, Genocides Past and Present in Canada. Andrew Wolford is a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of Manitoba. He's also a member of the Royal Society of Canada College and former president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. In 2015, he published a book called this Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide and Redress in the United States and Canada. He is also the co-editor of 2021's Did You See Us? Reunion, Remembrance, and Reclamation at an Urban Indian Residential School, which presents stories from survivors of the Assiniboia Indian Residential School. Dr. Wolford's full lecture will be available online through the U of A's Department of History, Classics, and Religion. Dylan Hall and I had the opportunity after the lecture to ask Dr. Andrew Wolford about his work, about defining genocide in Canada, and about some of the innovative ways that Indigenous scholars and communities are moving beyond settler colonial definitions of group destruction. So, Dr. Wilford, why were you drawn to the field of studying genocide and specifically studying it in Canada? 
Well, I was always involved in the human rights movement in my younger years. So when I got to university, particularly in my master's degree, I got interested in a lot of uh, human rights issues related to Latin America. In fact, during my master's degree, I had traveled down to uh, Chiapas and I was trying to learn Spanish so that I would be able to be a human rights observer in the Lacandon jungle um, during the, the Zapatista uprising and the aftermath of the Zapatista uprising. And unfortunately, I'm just not very good with languages. So I had a basic Spanish, but not good enough that they wanted to send me into the jungle. <laughs> you know, they didn't trust I would be able to produce a reliable report. So while I was sitting there in, uh, in San Cristobal de las Casas, and you can hear my horrible Spanish accent, I was you know, checking news from home and I saw that the British Columbia treaty process was ongoing. And it dawned on me that here I was, you know, in Mexico, trying to work in support of indigenous Mayan peoples when I knew so little about indigenous peoples in Canada, um, particularly on Vancouver Island where I grew up and, you know, on indigenous territories about which I knew nothing. Um, and the whole idea of a BC treaty process at this stage, I didn't even really know why this was being, why this was being brought up now. I didn't know that, um, you know, British Columbia had no treaties except for in small portions of Southern Vancouver Island and the Northeastern part of the province. And that, um, you know, reserves had been somewhat randomly assigned to the various nations. I knew nothing about the cultural diversity of indigenous nations within uh, what is now British Columbia, you know, the various cultural linguistic groups um, that are as distinct from one another as the nations of Europe. So um, that drew me back to work on the BC treaty process. And it was at that point when I was speaking with leaders and elders as part of the interviews I was conducting for my project, which was at that point still framed around the issue of reparation. You know, is this a form of justice for a past wrong that was committed by a set of Canadians against Indigenous peoples. And they would sit me down and say, well, first we have to tell you about the genocide. And, you know, they would tell me, um, you know, the, the, the history of their people, um, whether it was the ways, for example, on the, on the Tawasin First Nation, the way the, um, the BC Ferry Terminal basically destroyed the last longhouse and um, all the development around their nation killed all the shellfish life or you know, deprived them of access to uh, the shellfish life that had been always part of sustaining their communities. Um, so this really struck me and it also struck me because at the time I was TAing for a course on genocide studies, which was my first introduction to this field that became my area of research. And, you know, these two, these two involvements, these two um, intellectual pursuits I was involved in, you know, sort of came together through those elders and leaders statements uh, about genocide in Canada, making me think, well, you know, what has been said about genocide in Canada? And, you know, why do we not discuss this? And, um, you know, at that time, I'd also been reading some of Ward Churchill's stuff and thinking, okay, well, here's, you know, someone who's critically looking at the genocide concept and wanting to continue in that sort of critical tradition of not just simply trying to become a lawyer and adjudicate genocide, but also think, you know, 
what is this concept? Where does it come from? Whose power is reflected within the conceptual architecture of genocide? Mm. So in other words, you felt truth needed to come before any kind of process of reconciliation. Yeah, that was the message received. Um, so um, much of my dissertation then became about, uh, and this was published in a book called Between Justice and Certainty, uh, which was published by the UBC Press. Um, much of the book became about, you know, this past and how the process tried to cordon off this past to prevent the past from being part of negotiations. And um, therefore the alleged justice process was hamstrung from the beginning because it couldn't address history. It wanted to focus on this idea of certainty that you know what we needed to do was create certainty in relations between indigenous peoples and the settler governments, particularly around the ability of um, resource industries being able to get access to, to territory. So, yeah, it, that was definitely, you know, shifted the focus of my dissertation and then also set me on thinking about, well, what can a, what can a sociologist who studies social institutions and institutions, particularly socio-legal institutions, um, what can we do to sort of understand the blockages that exist in settler Canadian society that prevent justice from happening? And that requires, you know, looking at the past, looking at the truth, rather than trying to jump into reconciliation before we grapple with how systemic um, settler colonial ways of seeing and being in the world are. And so taking on that project and beginning to write about genocide in Canada, um, the term genocide has been historically or publicly associated with the Holocaust. Can you talk about writing in the shadow of the Holocaust and the urge to define the genocide in the Americas as a cultural genocide? I certainly invested a lot in Holocaust scholarship because Given the, the size of the field of Holocaust scholarship, uh, we've had so much great insight and lessons from that research. So I don't want to downplay that research um, at all. And I've, I've done you know, intensive seminars on the Holocaust just to broaden my knowledge of this very complex event. And, you know, part of the shadow of the Holocaust is a oversimplified understanding of what the Holocaust was, you know, because of the, the impact of, of seeing something like an Auschwitz, of the death camps and the horrors represented, the horrors enacted within that space, that sticks with people. And that becomes their, their, their way, their sort of, you know, uh, their model for understanding what genocide is. And they ignore, for example, things like the destruction of synagogues or the destruction of Jewish literature or the various ways in which the Holocaust was designed as a, a, as a means of mass theft of Jewish wealth, you know, the economic aspects of the destruction. Um, so, I mean, it's a really complicated 
event with diverse modalities of destruction at play within it. And so, you know, part of the shadow is the shadow of Holocaust consciousness more so than the Holocaust itself, where people think the Holocaust is one thing and one thing only. And having spoken with, you know, the people I interviewed for my, my BC treaty pro process, the, the leaders and elders, I, I saw, you know, a more distinctive sense of what destruction meant from the perspective of an indigenous nation. I don't, I don't assume to fully understand that because I'm not grounded in these cultures. You know, I'm a settler scholar, so I don't have that, that deep embodied understanding of these cultures. But nonetheless, in doing my best to listen and to translate what I was hearing, it seemed to me that trying to force fit that into an interpretive grid, whether that interpretive grid is built upon a Holocaust model or a Holocaust prototype or the United Nations Genocide Convention seemed wrong. It seemed too limiting for fully understanding how these groups as groups suffered assaults upon their being and their ability to continue to reproduce themselves as groups. Because groups are, groups themselves are fluid. They're always in continuity. They're always, um, constituting themselves and reconstituting themselves through their engagements, through their relationships. So I did try to, in that sense, break free from the shadow somewhat by uh, deconstructing some of the key terms of the genocide debate in a way that I thought would open them up more to indigenous understandings of their own group life. And so my goal wasn't to try to say, well, this is what indigenous group life is and this is what we need to do, but rather to broaden the terms so that um, hopefully, you know, indigenous uh, knowledge keepers, elders, leaders, other people, uh, scholars could uh, see how their forms of destruction fit. This doesn't mean that there weren't physical, biological, and cultural forms of destruction enacted within North America. Um, you know, I still think there are ways that those terms fit. I just think, um, even using those terms is to give into um, a, a European cosmology because we make very distinct separations between, for example, the cultural and the natural world in a modernist European lens. And I don't think that's necessarily fitting for how a lot of indigenous groups understand their connections with their territories where uh, we might even be better to see the territory as part of the group, as a member of the group, rather than as simply something that's there to instrumentally sustain the group. So I'm going down many different directions, many different paths here, because it's a, it's a complicated question. Um, but in short, yeah, the, the, the Holocaust, you know, has a, a very strong um, pull upon the field because it is where most of the initial scholarship came out of and we're indebted to that scholarship forever because there's some, you know, incredible insight and, you know, there is a distinctiveness to the Holocaust in the sense of the, the, the Nazi regime's relentless attempt to eliminate European Jewish people from that continent. Um, which, you know, I think, you know, there are distinct aspects to every genocide. Um, so that's part of my problem with, you know, trying to... Um, fixate on a prototypical definition based upon one case rather than understanding how groups, in particular historical and cultural contexts, 
understand themselves and through that understanding, then looking at some of the ways in which they might experience destruction. And in all cases, I think cultural destruction is going to be important because culture is part of what bonds group members to one another. It's through culture that we have a store of resources through which we can communicate the culture to future generations. We have a way of seeing the world in common and you know, we get a sense of belonging and ways of becoming ourselves through interaction with that group. So these are all very important things um, that are targeted by groups who seek, who seek to eliminate other groups that they perceive as threats or burdens or something else that they see as negative. Coming up, we'll ask Dr. Wolford how he wades through some of the complicated and tough parts of studying in this field. This episode is brought to you in part by Taproot Edmonton. Want to start your day informed? Check out The Pulse, Taproot's daily news briefing. The Pulse tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and more. You'll also get features like A Moment in History and the Friday Podcast Pick. And it's free. Sign up today at taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse. That's taprootedmonton.ca slash pulse. Residential schools are central to the project of genocide. And I'm curious about the title of your recent book, The Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide and Redress in Canada and the United States. Can you explain why these destructive practices were termed benevolent, and as you put it, the moral certainty that drove assimilation and genocide? Yeah, yeah, it's a big question, and I'll try not to, you know, uh, <laughs> recite my whole book in answering it. <laughs> yeah. um, it was, I was drawn to that title, This Benevolent Experiment, although I would retitle it now because it's caused some confusion, but it comes out of a, a, a report on the early residential schools. And this report was written in the, the mid 1800s before the residential schools system as a system had really gotten going. Um, but basically in the report, the author declares that this benevolent experiment has been a failure. And so I was, because I was really interested in the notion, notions of um, social engineering and, and J James C. Scott's uh, work on thinking like a state. It was more the word experiment that drew me than benevolence, but the, I, the juxtaposition of the two that someone could be doing an experiment where you're really, you know, you're objectifying fellow humans by, you know, treating them as experimental test subjects, which we saw was actually happening you know, within the schools, you know, through the medical experiments that were taking place and the nutritional experiments that were taking place within them. Um, but, you know, they were a massive experiment in social engineering to see if you could transform a people from their cultural roots into being different sort of actors. I don't, you know, not full Europeans because they're always going to be, you know, placed within menial positions in Canadian society but simply to transform them so that they're more amenable to the settler colonial nation and its ambitions. And so 
the idea that you could say that you're doing an experiment, but somehow still convince yourself or try to convince yourself that it's benevolent, which you know obviously is simply propagandistic. And I thought, you know, the idea that this was acknowledged as an experiment, part of for me, part of probably reflected that kind of genocidal intent that was at the root of um, assimilative schooling, both in Canada and the United States. This idea that there was referred to either as an Indian problem or Indian question that existed. And that Indian problem or Indian question basically amounted to Indigenous peoples were not easily giving up their territories and were seen as an obstacle to nation building. And you know, the extractive industries that wanted to take root in parts of Canada and the United States, as well as the settlement that was sought in other areas. So, you know, you have this, for me, uh, what I refer to in the, the book kind of as a collective action frame um, that guides multiple actors who sometimes have diverse motives. Um, but in all cases, they seem to have this moral certainty that what they're doing is right, whether their motives are reflect a sort of Christian so-called humanitarianism, where they're trying to see Indigenous peoples at blanks as blank slates upon whom Christianity can be written and their souls saved. Um, to those who took more of a pseudoscientific view, uh, seeing Indigenous peoples as um, lower on the evolutionary ladder and that it would take multiple generations for them to reach the level of Europeans. Um, to other people, you know, whose goals and motives were, you know, purely economic, um, seeking, you know, access to territories for, um, you know, engaging in profit-based industries upon or gaining more labor or, you know, whatever their goals might have been. We have multiple motives, but all of these things come together under this collective action frame that helps motivate them to commit to this common project of the residential school or the boarding school in the US. Uh, and I shouldn't just restrict it to those schools because you know, in the work, I look at the broader network of schools, uh, including day schools and mission schools and the variety that we're all sort of you know, trying to coordinate, not always doing a great job of coordinating, but trying to coordinate an effort to erase Indigenous cultures from the continent. Um, so just to put a lampshade on it, here we are, three settler men talking about the genocide of Indigenous peoples in North America. How does your thinking about being a white settler scholar affect the way that you approach studying genocide? Um, yeah, it, uh, it certainly makes me... Um, you know, it's been a learning process, I have to say, and it's something I, I still struggle with, you know, trying to say, okay, where is my role come in and where does it stop? You know, because I know a lot of my friends who are intergenerational survivors, you know, this material is re-traumatizing for them. And they don't necessarily want to have to answer the questions from the Canadian public that can sometimes be insensitively phrased. Mm -hmm. So I feel I have a role in doing that and trying to speak to settlers and um, also, I think, you know, part of what I've wanted to do is to give the what happened in Canada more of an international profile, because I feel it's not well known. It's often ignored within the broader international community. And, you know, to show that there is a le legitimate genocide studies 
case here that has been um, largely invisible. And then I try to focus my energy not on trying to, um, you know, ventriloquize on behalf of Indigenous peoples or to, you know, appropriate Indigenous knowledges or to sort of, you know, take on the aura of, you know, someone, an Indigenous scholar, but instead do what a sociologist should do, which is use our critical skills to interrogate how settler colonial institutions, which are the institutions that are my heritage, prevent justice for Indigenous peoples, not just in relation to, you know, residential schools, but as a criminologist, you know, looking at over-incarceration, for example, or mass incarceration of Indigenous peoples, or, you know, connecting some of these threads about how there's this institutional infrastructure within settler Canadian society that works on multiple fronts to harm Indigenous individuals and Indigenous groups. But that said, that didn't feel like enough. So that's part of the reason why I started moving into uh, doing more community-based research. It was particularly a problem around, you know, thinking about reconciliation because, you know, I was really struck by Glenn Coulthard's arguments about decolonization and drawing on that legacy of Franz Fanon and, and you know, seeing you know, decolonization really being led by the, the colonized, that it's being their job to rot, you know, that, that it'll be for the colonized to rise up rather than, you know, um, someone to give, you know, always keeping, um, you know, by you know, thinking that settler society will give justice to Indigenous peoples, uh, keeps Indigenous peoples in that sort of subjected a supplicant role rather than understanding the power, the force of Indigenous society rise up and and claim decolonization. So what I thought was more within my reach was kind of that everyday decolonization of forming relationships. And, you know, I was fortunate to have a good relationship with Theodore Fontaine, who's an elder and survivor uh, who lived here in Winnipeg. He was from the Seguin First Nation. He passed away in May of 2021. He's a former chief of the Seguin First Nation and author of Broken Circle, his memoir about residential schools. And, uh, you know, Ted opened up a whole set of relationships to fellow survivors for me. And I found by, you know, that even though I'm not a skilled event organizer or, you know, um, and designing a, a commemorative marker and, and some of the tasks we've taken on as a group were not necessarily in my wheelhouse, that learning um, through interacting with these very knowledgeable people who have, you know, all of them worked on a wide variety of boards and they have a lot of experience in organizing, um, you know, I've been able to participate in some ground level grassroots reconciliation that I think has the potential to rise up and, you know, um, give an example of how uh, unsettled relationships can take shape within Canadian society. Yeah, and we are not only settlers, but we're also men. And I'm thinking about the ways that oftentimes um, I guess historically those who've studied genocide have often been male. And you write that the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls provided a sophisticated legal analysis of genocide in Canada 
that injects indigenous law and gendered perspectives into the conversation. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it certainly is the case that um, genocide studies has been a very male dominated and white dominated uh, field. So the International Association of Genocide Scholars has been seeking to correct that. Um, the Women's Caucus as part of, the, of that organization has grown quite large. And um, we now have a woman president of the association, Melanie O'Brien, who's an Australian genocide scholar. Um, but attracting Indigenous scholars has been a little bit more difficult, I think, in part because of the very Eurocentric framing of the genocide concept, as well as the way in which the genocide concept often flattens and treats as passive uh, Indigenous groups. So a few Indigenous scholars like Tricia Logan have been participants in our group, but um, I mean, I think there's there's more room for growth there. But uh, turning to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, I think, you know, it's it's so important. I, I'm, um, you know, I'm really a fan of everything that uh, Fanny LaFontaine has been doing um, and, and saying in her public statements and in her writings about the genocide concept and how it applies in Canada. As a legal scholar, she's both shown how case law is opening up further consideration of cultural forms of destruction that, you know, it's not as clear cut as some lawyers would present it that simply, you know, uh, cultural genocide is legally meaningless is what, you know, some would say. And, you know, she she's showing how in, in, in case law, you know, judges, tribunals are having to grapple a little bit with the fact that groups you know, the, you know, the thing we hope to protect, the entity that is in, that we intend to protect through genocide law, that <clears throat> groups are, you know, made up of their cultures. Cultures are a key element of what holds those groups, that binds those groups together. And, you know, as well, though, it's important that they don't stop there, that they say, okay, well, you know, we have this concept, but this concept does not adequately grapple with the gendered nature of genocide. And genocide, you know, can, you know, some people use the term gendercide uh, to refer to the ways in which gendered groups are targeted for destruction. Um, you know, this, so this could be, for example, in some case, it's young men who are the ones being targeted for destruction because they're the potential fighters in some genocide. Genocides, that's, you know, the, the gendered nature of destruction. In others, it's women and their, you know, their their powers of reproduction, um, you know, um, that are being targeted, or sometimes you know women are being targeted because it's seen as a way of also communicating power to the men, because in very patriarchal societies where women are seen as more the possession of men, uh, targeting women for sexual violence is a way of communicating domination over those other groups, but. You know, specifically in Canada, I mean, thinking of the gendered nature of genocide and the ways in which, um, you know, in, Indigenous women have been, you know, targeted for violence, as well as how this violence has been neglected by, uh, you know, police force, government, so on and so forth, um, demonstrates, you know, I think an on, you know, I think they, they show it demonstrates an ongoing uh, assault upon the um, the power of indigenous women within indigenous societies, you know, 
um, their, their key roles as, as leaders within their communities, um, their key role in holding together indigenous societies. So, you know, I think um, it, the report is important because it gives us a way to think about how gender can be very essential, uh, you know, essential foundation for a way a group maintains itself. We can also think, you know, the way in which, you know, um, you know, non-binary people might also be targeted in genocide or two-spirited people um, are targeted within genocide, you know, as genocide tries to impose this very strict gender order. And I think there's also been some really interesting work on residential schools as gender disciplining institutions that sought to, um, you know, sought to eliminate any um, gendered ambiguity that might exist, um, you know, within indigenous societies and, you know, particularly, um, you know, the, the lives of two-spirited people were targeted, but as well, you know, um, a very westernized gender roles were imposed on those who were, uh, you know, seen as women, those who were seen as young men, and you know, trying to put them into labor roles that suited their perceived genders. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important in that respect. And, you know, and I also think it's important because you know the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Society also brings Indigenous legal orders into the conversation. And the way you know, and I don't pretend to be expert in these legal orders, um, but you know, if you read the work of people like John Burroughs and see how indigenous law is very much a living law, seeking to always be engaging with its environment. Um, you know, I think there's important lessons to be brought into genocide law, which tends to, you know, get frozen, and tends to get stuck, it tends to narrow rather than to reach out to its broader context. I think there's important lessons there for genocide law that could be drawn in, drawn from uh, indigenous legal orders. Interesting. I hope I answered that question. <laughs> yes, yes, and and we're running out of time here. Um, we're really curious in studying all of this how you've navigated the emotional weight of studying genocide, and I guess knowing that this is the last question as well, if there's anything else that you want to say or think is really important to the conversation, please feel free to do so yeah i think you know um while i would never try to compare trauma i experience with that of you know um the the victims and survivors of genocide um it certainly is something you have to contend with and you know learn practices of self-care in order to um, be able to you know do things like sleep at night um, you know, so, uh, I learned early on that I can't read this material before I go to bed because I would actually have, you know, wake up with nightmares about it. Um, so, you know, I changed that practice. Um, I do, you know, I did like watching movies and I, I felt like, you know, cinematic representations of genocide were important to my thinking, but I, I simply stopped watching them at, at some point because, you know, the visual became again something that I found too impactful sometimes. So um, I sort of restrict my viewing of of uh, of cinema and 
you know, I do still do read a few novels about genocide. Um, you know, I'm often surprised how I think I'm going to a, a superhero movie. And then I find out it's all about genocide too. You know, uh, Marvel series are, uh, you know, even, you know, you pick up a Harry Potter book, which I, I don't anymore. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, it just seems genocide cre- creeps as a theme into anything. So sometimes you feel you can't escape it, even when you're trying to find something that is escapist. But yeah, there's, there's certain points where you just simply have to accept that you you feel really sad. And, and now actually I, I, I embrace those. Like sometimes when I'm at a museum or at a commemorative marker and I, you know, I find tears come to my eyes, I, I'm actually quite happy because the other side of this is you can be uh, desensitized. And um, because you're exposed to so much of it, that it just becomes, you know, you shut off those emotions. So. Now I also try to take time to give thanks for um, my emotions because I, you know, I want to continue to feel, um, and I think that's an important part of being able to connect, particularly in the, the community-based research I'm doing now. And, and certainly, you know, when you, you sit in a sunrise ceremony with survivors, or, or you're in another ceremony and you feel the drum, you know, I think that emotion is really important, and I. Um, and you know, I I, I find the, the the rituals that the the survivors share with me, things like smudging, are, are very helpful in terms of you know just having a practice, uh, you know, a thoughtful practice for thinking about you know trying to cleanse yourself of some of the the burden of these very dark and negative um, histories. Thanks for sharing that. Um... And thanks for speaking with us, Dr. Wolford. Great, thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips, with help this episode from Dylan Hall. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. We read all your messages, even if we don't always have a chance to get back. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts, or on Instagram and Facebook, too. Thanks to Lisa Piper, Crystal Fraser, Shannon Stenenbauer, and everybody else in the U of A Department of History, Classics, and Religion who helped put this together. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. We'll have links to some of the resources that Dr. Wolford mentioned, and also some of the support resources from the beginning of the episode on our website, letsfindoutpodcast.com. We're also going to be taking a break after this until the end of January, so we'll catch you again in the new year. Original music for this podcast is by the phenomenally lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.